This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental I don't uh, know planes man. that they're building? Police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. And welcome to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm Colonel Conrad. Cause I don't give a fuck. Yeah, lies. Evidently, <laughs> evidently lies. that guy didn't fucking either. Yeah, no shit. So, welcome everybody. Welcome, to strange uncles. Uh, thanks for joining us yet again. Um, I guess I don't know how was your guys's Fourth of July. This is going to drop later, but uh, we just had Fourth of July weekend where everybody tried to catch the entire nation on fire. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm surprised my friend's uh, neighborhood didn't burn to the ground. It was complete anarchy. I've never seen so many personal fireworks be lit up. Was that over in the Glendale hood? Yeah. But yeah. now, and now aerials are legal in Utah. So, I mean, it was just, it was insane. It was like two, three hours of nonstop. Just, bah, I, don't bah, bah, bah. I don't get it. I, I just, and I, I took a little bit of acid. So I was like, oh man, I want this <laughs> to stop. This isn't working right. <laughs> that neighborhood's always like a war zone on the 4th and the 24th. It's, it's which I uh, used to think was fun, but now it bugs the shit out of me. I think it was like that all across the valley. I saw some people posting like, <clears throat> "Is every other neighborhood just?" It seemed like every single person had bought at least four to five hundred dollars worth of aerial fireworks. It's what they spent the stimulus money on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, and it's kind of crazy. I didn't even think that no one's going to the park. You know, usually there's thousands of people that go to different various parks to watch the fireworks, and now everyone is home and everyone is lighting off fireworks, which. I don't see much of celebrating Fourth of July this year. <laughs> no, place, thank you. Any year, honestly. It, you yeah. know what? I never got the Fourth of July. I, I, I mean, okay, I get it, but you do it in the middle of fucking summer and with fireworks, and especially us over here in this area, Montana, Washington State. You, all you're doing is setting shit on fire. Like it just, it's, I just, I never understood it. Never understood it. I was for sure thinking that there was a house about to be lit on fire in my friend's neighborhood. I was like, there's no way a house isn't lighting on fire. It's just ridiculous. It ended up good. I was like, man, now's the time to commit a crime because it is complete (laughs) chaos over here. (laughs) Like the day before Halloween. What is it? They call it the devil's night. Just go fucking crazy. So that's funny. Well, you know, and like I said, I think um, I was actually was out of state. Uh, I was in Washington State visiting family and then kind of came back from Montana. Smaller town, so it really wasn't that big of a thing, but still the same thing. And then I was telling John before he started the podcast, we I saw the L.A., the legal fireworks in L.A. go off. And holy shit, it was crazy. Drone footage of just one thing after another, you know, just absolutely crazy. How are fireworks even allowed in California? I yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I guess everything's burnt. There's nothing else to burn, so they're like, fuck it. Yeah. Nah, they had a wet spring, man. Yeah, for a I hot two days. Think, <laughs> I don't think wet great. enough. Yeah, no, exactly. And then the whole Mount Rushmore thing, which we're not going to get into because we're trying to back off from grandstanding. However, a little upsetting. Anywho, 
Any hook. Um, we are. So, yeah, Fourth of July was good. Um, we're back together like we left you guys before. Um, we covered part one of the Rundlesham incident. And John, again, has more diligently trying to do part two, which is what we're kind of going to go into. Uh, hopefully, you guys write us if you have any questions. Or uh, last episode, we really set up the first night, right, John? Like, it was just the initial night was all it was. Yeah, it was the first night. And pretty arguably the first night is the most important night absolutely um, but yeah we we just covered uh what happened the events leading up to and the first night yeah so if you haven't listened to that episode go back to rendlesham part one and listen to that before this one yeah most or definitely don't see if well, i care yeah, yeah shit you can do the last one if you want to if you're gonna be a rebel you know by all means <laughs> um with that being said we're gonna go into it i will say though i i just i sorry took monday off Got back to work today for the first time, and my voice is very coarse trying to yell at contractors. So I might not be talking a lot, so I'm talking more now than anything, which, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. But, uh, you know, John, I'll let you run the gamut, and we're going to go ahead and play the intro, and we are going to roll into part two of the Rendlesham Forest Incident. It was dubbed Britain's Roswell. The story goes that a number of US servicemen saw an alien spacecraft near their Air Force base in Rendlesham Forest in Suffolk in 1980. The events began on the evening of the 26th of December when a Sudborn resident in the local village reported a mysterious shape like an upturned mushroom in the sky above his garden. As they get closer to the lights, they realize it's not a crash, it's an aircraft but unlike any they've ever seen. So, John, correct me if I'm wrong. We So, part one really led us with two main players, right? Two key role players that witnessed it, saw it. They're walking through what happened that night. Again, you know, Christmas uh, time frame. And then we, I think we left it just, you know, the fact that that was a first night that was saw. Now we're looking at what happened after the fact on the remaining days. Yep. So the main people and on the first night are John Burroughs, Airman First Class John Burroughs and Staff Sergeant Jim Penniston. Um, there was another Sergeant Ed Cabinsag, but he was left at the Jeep on the dirt road to kind of perform the relay that I was talking about because the radios weren't working. We had left after the experience, after the whole night is done, and the three of them are driving back to the base. And Jim says that his complete worldview has just basically changed overnight in an instant. Um, that rocked his world pretty good. And as he got to the back to the base, he realized that his digital quartz watch was actually behind 45 minutes which he thought was unusual. Everybody's on the base was five. Uh, it said it was five o'clock and his was 45 minutes behind, which he just says it's unusual because the battery is fine. It's a digital quartz. It shouldn't be off. So that's a little interesting, a little missing time as he got back there. Um, he also heard later that when he arrived back at the base, that there was probably about 80 different other personnel on the bases that saw the aircraft actually take off. Um, so I think that was kind of validating for him that, you know, he didn't just like lose his mind. So, um, 
Peniston and Burroughs, they kind of lived together in kind of like the same neighborhood. I think Burroughs just lived right down the street from him. So they would carpool back and forth despite Jim Peniston being severely annoyed with the young John Burroughs constantly. And it seems like Peniston kind of is annoyed with him throughout life. <laughs> Actually, like <laughs> years later, it's just like, he's just like, oh, my God. Well, on that documentary that I watched last night, like they didn't really have Peniston, but they had Burroughs on a lot. And this was shot right. in like 2014, I think. Yeah. And yeah, he was, he said his watch was 45 minutes slow too. Like he said that they were both behind. Um, mm-hmm. But also like it sounded like he wanted to get in contact with Peniston to argue about what happened. Yeah, like, there was some volatile I stuff see that there. Being annoying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny too. You mentioned not to make a joke out of it, but you know his digital quartz watch. You know, we know it's the '80s because you know that was the best timekeeping tool in the world back back then in that yeah. day. But it was something. I mean, it was something they both kind of admitted to. And and you know, I think I remember in the reviews that, or not the book, um, or not the reviews, the book I read was they uh, they were talking about like syncing their watches and looking down and both like looking at each other, going, "Damn, we're we're off." I mean, mm-hmm. we're not, time's not working how it should, you know, what we remember it to be. Yeah, kind of cool. So, yeah, it's pretty strange. So, as they're about to carpool home, Jim Pennison realizes that he's got the 35 millimeter film in his pocket and he's like, oh, I need to drop this off at the lab, get these pictures developed because he took the entire roll of pictures of the craft, supposedly. And as they're heading out, Burroughs suggests that they go check out the landing site one more time in daylight so they can actually possibly see, you know, a little better if there's indentations or, you know, whatever they might have seen the night previous. And Penniston agrees, like, you know, I think he wants to check it out. And at this time, it's about 820 in the morning when they reach the landing site again. And when they got there, they noticed the three large indentations on the ground. Um, And it was later discovered that all three of the indentations were 9.8 feet apart on all sides. And it formed a perfect equilateral triangle. And later on, they were able to determine that the object had to be about seven and a half to eight tons. Oh, no shit. Seems crazy. Yeah, that's huge. And this is according to Jim Penniston. Uh, And they looked around. They said they noticed there were broken branches that looked like they happened on the landing and takeoff. Um, they noticed scorch marks that were facing inside in the clearing um, and kind of like burns and everything. So that definitely kind of sealed the deal to them that they did see, or well, Jim Penniston at least saw a craft in this clearing and it did leave physical trace evidence of the encounter. Hmm. Hmm. Close encounter of the second kind. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, and uh i have a little note here so colonel halt later he wanted to review the law enforcement blotters and security blotters that were of the first night of that incident and he was the one that ordered them to be written up and he had read earlier but all of a sudden as soon as he requested them they disappeared no one was able to locate the blotters, hmm. which contained the incident report of that first night. First night to this day, those blotters and reports have never been recovered of that first night. Go figure. So something or someone purposefully 
didn't want any record of what was going on that night. Right. Ah, that's crazy. So we get to the early morning of December 27th and Jim Penniston just, he can't sleep. His mind's racing. Um, and he just, just flashing these ones and zeros just keep flashing in his mind. Just do, 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 do. And so finally he decides that he's going to take out that police notebook that he's written all his notes in and he's going to just write out all these ones and zeros. He's like, I can't get this out of my mind. Like I'll just write it down. That, that might work. Now just to recap. And so that was what happened in the first episode where he actually had that, that encounter directly with UFO where that he thinks that by his thing is a binary code is Mm -hmm. what he got flash downloaded basically. Yeah. And I mean, ones and zeros are binary code. Right. Right. So, I mean, that makes sense as to why he would kind of think that. So it takes him about 45 minutes to write down all these ones and zeros. And he said, as soon as he was done writing, writing out the code, if you, if you will, um, they pretty much went out of his mind. Oh, no shit. That that kind of solved it for the time being. Um, He had problems with their, with this for years afterwards with nightmares. He had horrible nightmares and that's actually what led to his decision to get hypnosis is to fix his sleeping problem. Not really even to it. When he got hypnotized, it wasn't his uh, goal to like dig up any lost memories of this incident. He was trying to fix his sleeping disorder, kind of jumping ahead here. But so as pretty much right around the same time as Jim Penniston is writing down the ones and zeros, there is a second sighting going on at RAF Bent Waters uh, Woodbridge base. And I think it's probably the lesser known sighting of all three or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was going on around 1.30, 2 a.m. on December 27th. So during the early hours of the morning of December 27, 1980, uh, 18-year-old law enforcement airman Lori Ann Bowen of D-Flight had begun her midnight shift. Having been stationed at the East Gate, the C-Flight team was now on its three-day break. The gate the previous night, and because the activity was concentrated at the East Gate, it was deemed wise to post a sentry on the gate in case of any curious personnel or visitors who had decided to turn up there, and more importantly, to monitor any further aerial activity. Lori observed what she describes as a red-orange fiery sphere of light, which also had an eerie blue-white corona. It was located on the north side of the Woodbridge runway, some distance away and above the tree line of the forest there. She says, you could tell it was big. It's like looking at the moon. Is the moon big? You knew it was big because you could see it. You know you knew it was off in the distance, and you are thinking it's just like nothing else you've ever seen. You can't even compare it to something because there's nothing to compare it to. And after a while, law enforcement Corporal John Tremontazzi was sent to join Lori along with four of his colleagues, also from D Flight. And like uh, like Airman Larry Lori, excuse me, like Airman Lair Lori. Bowen, I don't know why that's so hard to say all of a sudden. Corporal John Tremontazzi and the four personnel from D-Flight also saw a strange light north of the Woodbridge base runway. 
like the night before they saw different colored lights, red, green, and white lights, with or on the object in the forest, which were not flickering or blinking, but steady, and the object was quiet. However, the lighted object would suddenly disappear, then reappear at another spot. This activity was repeated, and there was no particular pattern as to where it reappeared. They announced what they were seeing to the control tower. Truman Tazi says that he and the others in his team had observed it for a good hour and a half and adds that it wasn't stars and that it wasn't a plane. It was just terribly weird. Hmm. And apparently security police, second Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin and master Sergeant Bobby ball were sent out to investigate. After a while, Airman Lori Bowen and Corporal Chairman Tazi, who both had been following developments on the radio, then heard Lieutenant Tamplin call out to Master Sergeant Ball, Bob, Bob, where are you? I can't see anything. Bowen recalled the fear in Lieutenant Tamplin's voice and is on record as having said Lieutenant Tamplin was frightened to death. She was so scared, and this was our lieutenant. After this, all radio contact with Lieutenant Tamplin was lost for 10 minutes. The story goes that at one point, the vehicle that Tamplin was driving had been struck by light beams and that a small sphere of blue light had raced through the vehicle. It said that all the power went off and the vehicle stalled and died. At this, Lieutenant Tamplin panicked and ran from the scene, having left her firearm inside the vehicle. There were rumors that she had crashed the vehicle and had even discharged her weapon. And after this incident, Lieutenant Bonley Tamplin was relieved of duty and was not seen again. And the thoughts of most people was that she had been traumatized by the event, which, of course, infers that she was involved in a real paranormal incident involving a UFO and had been posted in a new position elsewhere in the USAF, also known as the United States Air Force. I'll be damned. Yeah, so um, I've never really heard anybody talk about that sighting. It's definitely the lesser known, but that happened early morning on the 27th and the most famous one that we're going to get into is Colonel Halt's sighting. And that is, that happens on the, the evening. Right. Of the 27th. Right. And I, and I know too, and I know there's some witness accounts of like, we're mainly talking about military and what happened on that base because that's where it occurred. It was really directly there, but like the intro had played that you guys have heard a couple times over. There were also sightings from the um, uh, civilians out in town, you know, that mm-hmm. witnessed something and they reported not as definitive as anything else, but you know, they still reported it. So, you know, yeah. I, I still, there's still these little things that are kind of grasped onto this whole big enigma of what happened. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. More than more than, mm-hmm. I just don't think it was documented as well because they're just English people that really don't care. Maybe I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the case was. And I mean, with this, it's this story so convoluted with so many different pieces and the disinformation story that we'll get into a little later, like guys went into town and the memory is just a weird thing. You know, some people might've heard that disinformation story and kind of been like, yeah, I, I think I did see something weird that night after the pub or something. Right. Not right. saying I discredit them or anything, but no, but you know, like I said, people are, people see, and, and again, perspectives, they see things in their their own viewpoint of what their mind's trying to make sense of too. So maybe to them, it wasn't a big thing. Definitely was a big thing, obviously, as, as we lay it out. Um, John, before you go on, we're going to take a break real quick and uh, come back to more Rundlesham part two. Stand by. Welcome beyonders. Beyonders. 
to this weird place. Who are these two crazy guys and what is going on? Beyond Terrestrial, or BT for short, is a podcast dedicated to the strange, the macabre, the conspiratorial, and all things supernatural. Hosted by Dan Martson and Lee Ariat, two guys who discovered late night radio shows like Coast to Coast while working the night shift and stumbled into a world of fantastic tales and local legends. We share these stories with our dedicated fans we lovingly call Beyonders every other Tuesday. Join me and Lee as we take a mysterious journey into obscure local tales and spin up some hot takes on the supernatural stories we all know and love. Two words. Interdimensional Bigfoot. Oh yeah. All right, and we're back. Um, John, you were continuing with that evening, I believe, correct? Yeah, so this brings us into the evening of Saturday, December 27th. We The story begins with Lieutenant Bruce England, and he is picking up a man by the name of Monroe Nevels, and I can't remember his uh, rank, so sorry, Nevels. But <laughs> his name's Monroe Nevels. He picked him up from his home, and he... When Bruce went into Monroe Neville's house, he was like, hey, you need to clear the house. I have something top secret to tell you. And Neville says like his little toddler was there. So he put her out in the yard to play for a minute. And he tells them that he's ordered by Ted Conrad, the base commander, that they need to go out to the landing site and do their own investigation for Conrad. He's the one and they're doing this personally for him. And it's top secret. He's not allowed to tell anybody. Neville's being a super straight laced guy. And there's all accounts from Monroe Neville's like from his peers saying like he is a model officer. Like he's a model uh, military man. Mm -hmm. So that's a song. That's a song. (laughs) God. Modern military man. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. I am the modern military <laughs> man. Yes, I am. Just kidding. Uh, uh, so they, they drive to the base. Neville's drops his daughter off with his wife. That was at some kind of Catholic uh, church event on the base. And they hightail it out to the landing site. And when they get there, Neville says that, they do indeed see the three indentations. They see the, you know, the scuffed up trees. They see the scorch marks and everything. And in his, in Monroe Neville's account, he says that they were out there for about two to three hours, something like that. Mm-hmm. And right then they, the lights returned and they watched the oh, same wow. lights that many of their colleagues had been seen in the couple days prior, you know, the, the red and green and blue. And, you know, it, it almost gets redundant after a while describing the same thing, but hmm. they see the same lights that potentially Burroughs and Penniston saw uh, Lori and Tremontazzi saw, and they are, you know, they're like, Holy shit, here they are. And they kind of actually, they get in their car and they kind of drive after it and they would pull over They would get out and Neville's is even commented as saying, as it seemed like the object was reacting to their actions and their movements. And it was aware that they were watching it like marrying them. You know what they were doing. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As they were following, like as soon as they would get out, it would like, 
somehow it seemed like it was reacting to them. Hmm. And meanwhile, while this was happening, there was uh, there was a dinner at the officers' club, and it was kind of, it was like a formal dinner award show type of thing. They were handing out various awards that evening and um, all the, all the top brass of the military base were there. You had Ted Conrad, um, Colonel Halt, which was Lieutenant Colonel Halt at the time. He hadn't reached Colonel at that moment. Um, and then there's, there's a, you know, just everybody that was important was there. So they decide to rush over to the officer's dinner and immediately inform Colonel Conrad about what they saw. Like, you know, the lights are, we just saw some lights. Shit's shit's hitting the fan again. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're now seeing it. So Conrad rushes the two men into this kind of small meeting room. And I don't know why there's so much controversy of like, Colonel Holt said it was a broom closet and they, somebody else said it was this kind. It's like, who cares? They were all in a yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> small funny. room off to the side. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Like w- let's, let's move on people. <laughs> Wait a minute. What so, color was the room? What was it painted? I want to know. Damn Fucking it. details. That. God damn it. So right. yeah, they were rushed. They were rushed to a room by uh, Colonel Conrad. And when they entered the room, Lieutenant Colonel Hall and Major Zickler were already in the room waiting for them. Hmm. Which they thought was kind of weird. They're like, just seemed strange that they were already in the room and it appeared that they, it's like they almost knew they were going to get shuffled in there. They informed the majors and the colonels and everything of what they had just seen. Colonel Conrad orders Neville's and, and England to get out there and go. And this is, there's a lot of varying types of stories because this is, this was supposed to be Neville's investigation, but Colonel Halt kind of invited himself on this. And he says that he was ordered to go out there to kind of put this all to rest once and for all, and to kind of debunk everything. And everybody on base is, talking about ufos and everybody's like just getting a little hyper and so lieutenant colonel halt says he went out there to dispel the myths and just kind of put it to bed once and for all now what's your viewpoint on that and again you're the one reading this gargantuan book but you know and of course josh and i we've we've researched some documentaries but what's your viewpoint on halt in general and and kind of do you feel he kind of pigeonholed his way into this or this legitimate for what his role was. Does that make sense? I think he kind of weaseled his way to go out there. I mean, he's a Lieutenant Colonel. So, I mean, he kind of outranks everyone. Right. So, I mean, I think Colonel Conrad's the only one above him. So if he wanted to go out there, who's, who's going to say it? Right. Who can tell a Lieutenant Colonel that they can't, yeah. you know, the, the reason I asked is because of some of the tapes, not only we played before, but what we might play here uh, in the future, and just some of the viewpoints between Conrad and Halt and what was – that's the reason I asked because it was – I don't know. That, that's a integral part of it, I feel, ex- with Halt involved in what he decided he was going to do. But mm-hmm. uh, anyway, just a question. I was just kind of curious. Pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, well, Lieutenant Colonel Halt or Colonel Halt's stories do sometimes conflict with each other on certain times, mm-hmm. uh, people um, – 
And I kind of chalk a lot of that up to just the brain is a fallible piece of machinery and humans suck at remembering details. We're not, we're just not good at it. Like, yeah, we're just not perfect eyewitnesses. So some of it, I think all of his, all of Colonel Holt's uh, fallacies and kind of mix ups, I think they're genuine and not malicious. You know what I mean? I think right. it's just yeah, on, I get that. on it, honestly getting it, the story wrong on accident. Right. Colonel Halt advises, uh, gathers a small team as well, and he goes home and changes. And then there's all this, there's all this controversy on who picked Charles Halt up, and this is where like his story doesn't make sense with uh, Monroe Neville's because Neville's is like, I never picked him up. I went out there before Colonel Halt got out there. But I just don't see it as being the most important. And if you really want to get like a deep dive into that, you can read the Rendlesham Enigma to really kind of get the whole meat and potatoes on the he said, she said, you know, all that. Yeah, for for uh, for those of you who are watching the YouTube, hold that book up again, John. Let let the people show just how thick this uh, this book might be because <laughs> it really is ridiculous. It's yeah, just it's a nice, crazy. Nice Saturday <laughs> afternoon, so. Yeah. Got a little money in there to mark. So. I just think it's funny how much drama and controversy there is between a bunch of people who are supposed to be no nonsense professionals. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Me up a little. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just goes to show you that people are actually in the military, and people are idiots. So. Yeah, agreed. Um, so Colonel Hall, he goes home, and I think he gets in his fatigues or whatever. And they collect a small team. And by the time Colonel Halt gets out there, there's already like 20, 25 to his account, people already out there. Even people like there's a lot of officers out there that shouldn't be out there. They just kind of got wind of it and they're going to go check it out because there's just a lot of excitement on the base right now. So people are just going out there. Um, It's actually kind of chaos actually, because I mean, people are out there with no orders. They're just kind of, walking all around the forest, trying to look for where the landing site is. Destroying evidence, everything else going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Colonel Hall orders some Lidols to be driven out there. And Lidols are just big lights, essentially. So they can kind of see during their investigation of what's going on. And the Lidols finally come out there. And the closer they get, I mean, it's the same story. There's static in the air. The LIDALs stop working. Uh, engines stop working. The radios are shot. People start accusing people of not filling the LIDALs up with gas. They're like, you just brought us empty LIDALs. So they actually go back, and it's uh, Sergeant Adrian Bastenza that goes back, and he's responsible for refilling things but they take it back to the gas station on the base and the guy's like i've already filled these so it's just hmm. a lot of i wouldn't describe it as pandemonium but a little bit oh, highly unorganized and there's kind of a lack of leadership leadership like really, nobody yeah. knows what the hell's going on yeah yeah exactly yeah. lieutenant colonel halt finally tries to get some order going and he orders everybody he like orders everybody to stay back 
like don't go any further. Nick Pope is actually quoted as saying, in what sounds suspiciously like a breakdown of discipline, a number of personnel headed out into the force without any order or authority, simply out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just a free for all. And also Colonel Halt was freaking out because he thought this was going to be a PR nightmare because everybody was out there. They're not on American soil. Now they are out. Right. They're on English soil stomping around. They're in the queen's forest. If something happened, somebody caught wind. It's like, what are you guys all doing out here? So he just thought that the publicity would just be unbearable. It's a public relations nightmare. And Halt is quoted as saying, well, I was quite concerned. So I said to them, let's keep all these people back. We don't need the publicity. We are kind of trespassing. This was the Queen's Forest, sort of like a national forest. There's a lot of private property around here. We don't want to cause a lot of concern or get people upset. They're going to wonder what we're doing stomping around out here in the woods. So they said, okay. So he finally got everybody there. And people, and like I said, cars are not starting. People are... uh, blaming people for not filling the cars up radios start acting up i mean it's just the classic thing i mean it's just one thing after another just dominoed yeah so colonel hall is just frustrated with the lack of discipline that all the personnel are portraying out there and he tells everybody to stay at the staging post and just remain quiet which he says they did and he and a small team of men made their way to the landing site and i believe it was colonel hall I believe you hear Lieutenant England on there. There's there's a guy in the background on some of the Colonel Halt tapes like, look over there. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was uh, England that you can hear. Yeah. Um, real quick, John, do you want to uh, let people know, because you mentioned Nick Pope. Um, do you want to mm-hmm. back up and just kind of remind people Nick Pope or who he is, basically? Because he was, he was high up there for a while. Yes. Yeah, so Nick Pope worked with the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, for England. And he was kind of like the molder for the MOD. He studied UFOs and he investigated those for the MOD. And he's become quite the UFO celebrity. He's been on Ancient Aliens. He's been on every single UFO documentary you've ever heard of. I was going to say, I don't think there's one I could throw a stick at that he hasn't been on. Yeah, but yeah he's got some interesting background, which... You know, kind of gives them a nice knowledge base, I think, too, for what uh, – because if nothing else, we talk about people who they uh, – you know, in this whole line of, of work, you know, if they have some substantial work behind them. And, and I really think Nick Nick Pope is one of them, you know, for mm-hmm. what he what he did as an experience. So anyway, just so listeners know, yeah, I'm sure you heard that name, but, you know, we just want to recap a little. Yeah, yeah, Nick Pope. Um Google him if you're not sure who he is. Um, but yeah, he, he ran the UFO investigations for the MOD in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a cool dude. I like him. Yeah. So at the point when Lieutenant Colonel Halt began recording himself, he was about around 150 feet from the impact quote uh, or impact quote impact point being the landing area relating to the first night. So at that point, the team busted out. They had like night vision. They had starlight scope night vision, and they began investigating the area. They were picking up beta radiation and confirmed that there were indentations on the ground and bird marks and scratches on the trees, exactly like how previous night. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody that has gone out there and found the landing site has confirmed that these physical traces are there. 
Monroe Nevels, he says, initially I was looking for any activity on the gamma scale. After little or no activity, I then removed the beta shield and started searching the same areas for any activity with the beta probe, as suggested by either Lieutenant Colonel Hull or someone else, likely Lieutenant England. And this is where we started getting the more significant readings. The radiation was definitely beta. And the higher radiation readings were definitely at the center Nevels was out there. I remember him getting some Geiger readings that were impressive. I remember saying, oh, shit, there's radiation there. Because at one stage, I was standing right next to Nevels. And that is a quote from Adrian Bastenza talking to Georgina Bruni in 1998. And she wrote a book on the Rendlesham incident. Mm. And this is just some chatter between everybody. And this is on Colonel Holt's um, recorder after he started. So the ground appeared to have been blasted at that spot, which would have been directly underneath the center of the craft. Lieutenant England, this looks like an area here possibly that could be a blast. It's in the center of the triangle. Hall, it's hard to tell. Here, take this. My finger's about to freeze. And then Halt says, we found a small blast, what looks like a blasted or scruffed up area here. We're getting very positive readings. Let's see. Is that near the center? Yes, it is. Well, we assume it is. This is right in the center, dead center, England says. Neville's picking up some more as you go along, the whole area here now. So this is just kind of them just chatting and everything. And then, so the light the light alls were still not functioning properly, but Hult's patrol were managing to get by with the star scope and their torches. Nevertheless, the light all situation was becoming a major problem, and vehicle engines were also affected. And Lieutenant England tried again to get Halt's attention, this time on the same abrasion pattern evident on all the trees surrounding the clearing or landing site and only on the sides of all trees facing inward towards what England called the blast area, the center point between all three depressions. And so, yeah, they're just seeing everything that Burroughs and Penniston have have, uh, reported earlier. So I think that gives a lot of credence to what they were saying. And he just, Colonel Halt just goes, keeps on recording from there. And at around 1.48 in the morning, Halt mentions on his tape that the animals start on the farm because they're right near a farm. Yeah. Says they start making a lot of noise and we're acting very strange. And then static was in the air again and, you know, representing that the phenomena had returned again. Then Bruce England looks and says to Halt, there's something out there. Look at that. It was some type of red thing. Yeah. Okay. So this is where we get into this. Um, so there are Halt tapes out there and anybody can look them up on YouTube and find them. It's about 24 minutes long. Bear in mind, listeners, it's kind of hard to hear. This is all, not only is it walkie talkie conversation, but it's walkie talkies that are taped, which makes it even worse. So, but we're going to play well, some. It's actually episodes. a cassette recorder. Yeah, but he was still uh, recording the walkie-talkie speech back and forth, right? On the cassette recorder? I mean, he was just speaking into a cassette recorder. Oh, because there was different. There was like four voices going on. How Needless to that's, say, it's just that's just what That's what the cassette so. recorder is picking up is like people just talking oh, gotcha. behind okay. him. Yeah. Well, either it's or, it's a not good. recording either way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, either yeah way, it sounds horrible. Good. Yeah, it sounds horrible. But there are some things we can make out on that. So we're going to play a couple clips real quick. We'll play one. We'll kind of talk about it. And then we'll play another uh, and probably catch a break after that. But, um, yeah, these are the halt tapes. So uh, stand by. You'll listen to some weird stuff here. It's coming this way. It's definitely coming this way. 
I'm so glad technology is better nowadays. Oh my Christ. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, interesting. This is what they're seeing out there. There's something out there, you know, just like this whole thing. I don't know. Thoughts. I mean, there's some, there has to be something out there and I just don't think it's a lighthouse. <laughs> Surely <laughs> one of those guys out of, you know, out of the small group that's there has to go, uh, it's a fucking lighthouse, dude go back i'm cold right right well and we'll get it i think a little bit of that towards the end because there are all these weird theories that uh i don't know a lot of them just don't stick to the wall i mean they really don't you know especially when you have these eyewitness accounts so mm-hmm. um let's play clip five and then uh we're gonna roll into a break so we see strange uh stroke like flashes to the uh rather sporadic but there's definitely something uh, some kind of phenomenal at about uh, 10 degrees horizon uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shaped, dancing about with colored lights on them. But it uh, gets to be about 5 to 10 miles out, maybe less. The half moons are now turning into full circles. Because I know there was an eclipse or something there for a minute or two. Through 2016, now we've got an object about 10 degrees directly south, 10 degrees off the horizon. Yeah, I'd say it's unreal. Definitely. That's amazing. Um, Stand by for a break, guys. If you like podcast and you like science come on baby listen to us oh my god is that good (laughs) yeah that was that was epic listen to the mad scientist podcast on all of your itunes and other listening things i'm your host chris cogswell here with my co-host marie mayhew and we sing we sing we sing a lot we sing for science yes we talk about science, we talk about history, we talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and things, and it's a lot of yeah. fun. So come learn about yes. ghosts and UFOs and physics and chemistry 
and a little bit of biology. And about economic collapse. On the Mad Scientist Podcast. Oh, my God. All right, and so we're back. You know, again, you know, the Hall tapes are amazing to hear, but, you know, it's technology, I guess, in general. Um, but, you know, people like that, and again, John, you mentioned about the lighthouses or the theories going out there. I, I, It's really hard to think that that is the case when you have that many people and that many things going on, and that's what they're witnessing. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's just not I, – I concur with it. That's just not a lighthouse. I'm sorry. It's just not, you know. No. So – crazy it's it's definitely not so monroe nevels is quoted as saying the object then moved back into the field to the left of the farmer's house at about 11 o'clock ahead of us i had to track along with the men and so too remain free i left the radiograph instrument where we had just been taking readings and moved to the edge of the farmer's field as we stood behind the fence that led into the field in front of us we then saw what looked like a large oval yellowish object hovering low in the air with also yellowish blue and red colors as though it might be a very hot metal or steel burning at very high temperatures. It resembled a boiling pot of hot molten metal or steel, which had pieces dripping from it or had pieces discharging away from it. This would be the closest analogy I can make to describe it. Pieces of flying debris were being shed and it seemed to get hotter the closer we got as we approached it. What we were observing made absolutely no sense at all. It appeared to be motionless and still as if it were recharging itself. I then took a few photos of it with my Nikon F3 and a 105 millimeter F20 2.8 lens with Tri-X at ASA 400. Uh, Nevels was actually a professional photographer as well. Oh, okay. That, now that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After that, Lieutenant Colonel Hall and I took the initiative and climbed over the fence, but almost as soon as we touched ground on the other side, the object or vessel moved and appeared to be moving towards us. I say appeared because everything happened so quickly. I've noted that several witnesses who were out there with us that night have claimed to have also climbed over the fence, but this is not true. I never saw anyone else climb over the fence. There was just not enough time for anyone else to follow Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Hall and me in climbing over the fence and retreating back over again quickly. In any case, just as the object or vessel appeared to be rushing towards us, it suddenly disappeared. Hmm. And it seemed like it just disappeared in a flash. And people were like a little dazed by this and were in awe that it was just so fast and you know, they're just like, where did it go? What the hell just yeah, happened? Just, just, just like that. Then it, God, it's crazy. Well, so here's yeah. the thing. There's also, and let me, I don't think I mentioned this on the first one, um, but there are, yes, this happened. This incident happened with the UFO. This is huge with Rendlesham because it, it not only was witnesses, like we mentioned, not only the locals, but military was involved. Other people had witnessed it um, kind of similar to the same thing. But not to get folklorish, but that forest in general throughout the ages has become a little folklory. Like there's oh, yeah. just been weird things that have happened in Rendlesham Forest. Creatures back in the day that people talk about and these other things that had happened. It's just not this one little incident. It's that area has just – it's been somewhat of a hotspot for a lot of the locals and a lot of the English lore. And and I, I don't know if that leads to anything or adds anything, but it's interesting. So yeah, it's it's regional like regional folklore for sure, like black shuck and stuff like that mm-hmm. around there. Yeah, yeah there's also uh, a 1956 incident of jets chasing over bent waters, 
And on the night of the 13th, August 1956, one of the most significant UFO encounters took place over Bent Waters. Uh, the Air Force Intelligence Information Report on this incident on the 13th, 14th, August 1956 was filed by Captain Edward L. Holt. And on the night in question, radar operators at Lake and Heath and Bentwaters Air Bases in the east of England had repeatedly tracked both single and multiple high-speed objects, which made rapid changes of speed and direction. Two jet interceptors were sent up, and the pilots were able to view and track them in brief series of maneuvers. According to official U.S. Air Force reports, the sighting could not be explained by radar malfunction or by unusual re- weather. Hmm. So that was back in 1956, a little yeah. – a little – Another piece, little tidbit. So you know, there's more stuff out there. You know, that just yeah. that area has just been just yeah, just been crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Huh. So that didn't end it for the sightings, though. Um, it disappeared, and then Monroe Neville says that after a quick search, I then looked up and noticed three grayish lighted disc-like objects overhead, about a thousand feet off the ground. It looked as if our activity was being observed. I then pointed out to Colonel Halt they were in the sky. And now that the three objects were being observed in the sky, Colonel Halt continues his account by telling us that he was able to use his radio to ask the command post to contact the air traffic control tower on the Bent Waters base to see if anything had come up on the radar. Their response? They came back and said nothing. They don't see anything. Halt then told the command post to have Eastern Radar, which had the radar for the area, including air defense, and also Heathrow Tower to try and locate the objects. Halt told them where the objects were, but again, the same answer came back. Nothing. Negative. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So pretty interesting. Um, And there are reports of some of the airmen being terrified, even crying and refusing to go even even further. Further into it. Uh, Yeah. Well, with that being... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I wanted to, uh, you know, we've got one more clip of the halt tape, which kind of wraps it up of when it kind of disappeared and they started going back to the base. And, and I think at that point, yeah, if you're any airman, that's probably the line you're going to draw in the sand and say, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't know what I signed up for, but it wasn't this. So anyway, let's play that real quick. What the side looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude. We're turning around and heading back toward the base. Yeah, okay, and again, there's more to the halt tapes, but I think that um, that kind of gives you the gist of it mm-hmm. for the yeah, most and part. If, if you do want to listen to the entire halt tapes, it's about 24, 25 minutes, and you can just easily find them on YouTube. Yeah, and I think what we yeah, might do, we available. might we talked about dropping them on uh, for Patreon listeners. For those of you who are Patreon, we might just go ahead and drop that entire tape session on there, so you don't have to go look for it. Um, the whole session is very interesting. I, I'm, granted, you know, a lot of it is they initially get out there, they see what they're doing, they're doing the investigations, and it's not to the last, you know, I'd say ten minutes when they start seeing what they're seeing. They do the radiation testing that we talked about in part one and some of the other things. Um, very interesting all in all, but uh, I, I think we might do that just for you Patreon listeners. So become a Patreon member. FYI. And we'll do the work. And we'll do the work. That's right. <laughs> it's not like a tire commercial. Jeez. Okay. Anyway. So those are kind of the sighting, the main sightings that have happened. I know there's other 
sightings here and there, but those, those are the the three main ones and essentially the two main ones because the middle one isn't really that well known. And I think the first night is the most important night because, you know, Agreed. Jim Pennison actually saw a craft on the ground, touched it, felt it, saw markings, got some transference of knowledge directly into his brain. The second night is very interesting with the Colonel Halt tapes, but it was them just seeing lights in the sky, essentially. So I think the first night is a lot more significant to me personally. I, I think so. Listen to the story. I, I tend to agree with you, John. I don't know about Josh. I mean, and I think that's really what hit people the most in that first night. The second one was probably people were, were still kind of reeling in what was happening and, and gathering their, their, you know, their ambition up to go out and see what's going on. Yeah. They're well, some lighthouses. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it seems like the first night has actually, there's been a lot of effort to kind of initially cover that night up. And they just wanted they just wanted to right. they would rather have stuff focus and that's kind of where the containment and disinformation story came from was the third night. And that's kind of what they wanted to focus on and add on to that. So we'll we'll get into that. But so the aftermath on the morning of December twenty ninth, Jim Penniston was called into the AFOSI office. And that's the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And he was called in there for a meeting and he was met there by two agents. And these two agents asked Jim Penniston to write down what had happened to him on that first night of 25th into the 26th. And they said, you know, Jim, don't don't leave out any detail. No detail is too small tell us literally everything that happened that night. So Jim's like, he knew that this would be a career ender. He's, you know, he even told the guys, he's like, I'll write it all, but it can only be a career ender, career ender doing this. And one of the agents said, don't worry about that. This is a confidential <laughs> investigation and we have no ties to the United States air force. The oh. statement won't ever be viewed by anyone at the base. So it's sure. interesting there. You don't have anything to do with the air force. So who are these people? Are they with right. the CIA DOD? You know, who, who are these people involved with? But, you know, anywho, Jim writes down a detailed four page summary of what had happened to him that night. And the people read it. And after they were done reading it, he, you know, he wrote the de- a super detailed description. He even drew pictures and everything. And after the two men were done reading it, they told him, okay, this is your story. And they handed him a piece of paper with, it, it's, it's like two paragraphs, three paragraphs, super small, super, typical. super simple, typical. zero detail. And it's just not what happened. And he said, or the two men told Jim, this is the story you're going to tell from now on. The story is classified. You're never allowed to talk about it. Anytime anybody asks you what is ha- what happened that night, this is what you're s- supposed to say. Your career will be fine if you stick to this story. So that is where... Mm. That's where the cover story came from. 
and he he didn't sign it. He didn't date the paper. Um, and he actually still has a photocopy of that paper. <laughs> no shit. That's funny. Mm. Huh. Uh, it's actually it's actually in his book too. So after his meeting with AFOSI agents, he had a meeting with the base commander, Ted Conrad, and Conrad had asked him to tell him exactly what happened the other night. And Jim kind of thought that this was his test. He was, he was just like, okay, I'm, I'm being tested. And so he told uh, Colonel Conrad the cover story. Yeah. And he said, you know, he felt like shit for saying it, you know, he's lying, but he, he needs to keep his career intact. I mean, he's a family man. Um, That was part of Conrad's dismissal of the whole thing too, was he said that, um, that Colonel Hall or that Peniston. Yeah. Thank you. I got them confused for a second. Yeah. He said that Peniston even gave him a very vague, undetailed account and then basically made all this stuff up later. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 um, And I actually purposefully left out a lot of names in this story just because it's just a lot of names and it's, easy to get confused so well but i think that's fair on your part because i mean honestly there there really isn't but a handful of key players i mean there was mm-hmm. other people that saw and i think even you know well like uh, is it ne- neville's you know i mean mm-hmm. it's legitimate because he does have some background he did have a part of it but you know you start throwing everything out there and that's where it gets lost in the weeds and and i think a lot of stories do because you have so many different involvements and some of them there's so much thing is getting too deep and then by that time, the story's fucking lost, you know? Yep. So, yeah. Um, and actually, Neville's, his story has never changed. It's never wavered. Mm-hmm. Um, he has always been, he's always told the same exact story. Yeah. So when you're stretching the truth or when you're lying, you know, it's, it, it's hard to keep track of what you're saying. But essentially, after Colonel Conrad... Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Halt requested to see Peniston and he, he told Peniston that he had actually seen the object last night as well. And Peniston said that he felt a great relief off his shoulders. And he's like, Holy shit, you, you saw it too. And he's like, yeah. And he said, he asked Jim to write him a report because he was now in charge of the investigation. Hmm. But Jim now knew he was part of the cover up. That's what he was thinking. He's like, well, right now, Colonel Halt's part of the cover up. And he said he tried to remember to the best of his ability, the new short cover up story and gave that version to Halt. And I mean, he gave that version to Halt. He gave it to Conrad. And over the next few weeks and months, Jim was interviewed and interrogated constantly, not only by people in his chain of command, but other air force agencies and various branches of service, both in the U S and the UK. Um, And he, always gave the cover story Hmm. always Jesus. And that's why he was able to continue his career in the air force. Um, There is a man named by the name of general Basley, and he was given halts tapes to listen to. And everybody just wanted to distance themselves from the events that happened over Christmas. Like nobody, I mean, it's the military. No one's trying to mess with UFOs. They're all serious men. And he basically said that 
it happened off base and on British turf. So it's a British affair. And that was that fair. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's right. So, you know, there is that, but still. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's the general. So what are you going to say? Right. Um, it, It actually, it actually took two weeks before the bases reported to England about this incident. Really? So two weeks had passed before the English authorities had even found out about this. But found out on the on the military side because there again yeah. there were some local reports. Okay. December thirty first, Jim goes to pick up the pictures that he had taken. And of course, none of them turned out. Of course. Yeah. Um also Monroe Nevels, him being the professional photographer he took pictures and he said he used all fresh chemicals like everything was brand new in the dark room um, and those didn't turn out either and he says that he blames the radiation fields that were going on that possibly messed with the pictures being taken i heard that on several different reports too because when i initially heard that there are pictures and and you cover that in part one i frantically looked on the internet and of course nothing i mean there's there's nothing so that you know, mm-hmm. that makes sense. That wraps that all up in a neat, tidy bow, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yep. So the containment story is J.D. Ingalls was responsible for spreading disinformation story around the base and in local areas just days after the incident. Ingalls claims that he was ordered to do this by security police squadron commander Major Zickler. And Zickler was one of the people in the room uh, when Lieutenant England and Monroe Neville's were rushed in and had that quick meeting before they assembled the team and went out to the forest on that third night. And so in the book, it's says in any case, in hindsight, it's not what I said or did not say to JD Ingalls. That was important. What was important was what he was telling me as he began to open up on what he knew and what he was involved in. In short, Staff Sergeant J.D. Ingalls had told me that he had been tasked to give out a disinformation story around the base and in the local area just days after the incidents. My response to him was, why in the world would you want to do that? He then said that this was what he was told to do by the Security Police Squadron Commander, Major Malcolm Zickler. Ingalls then added that he then... Ingalls then added that he then gave out the story in conversations around the base and in the surrounding area and would then report back to Major Zickler to let him know how the story was being received and consumed by the people at the base and by the locals. Hmm. And he said, Ingalls said that what he was uh, what he was told that the disinformation story he would be putting out about the incident would evolve as just another UFO story and that this was the best solution to hide what had really happened. He added that he was told to assume the identity of a security patrol airman and spread the disinformation around on base and at the local pubs he visited regularly. And by embellishing Halt's story with disinformation would make the whole incident just another sensational UFO story, which would be seen by many as being too ridiculous to be true. He said, I asked about the disinformation and what exactly he had been saying. Um, So yeah, J.D. Ingalls kind of, went around and said only talked really about the third night. He said that there were aliens that came out. They, he, part of the story was they saw creatures, aliens, and then 
some people were trying to help them fix their craft. What? Yeah, that's part of the containment story. Um, so some officers were trying to fix their craft and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, and that's just turning it into a ridiculous, oh, yeah, cover, you know, ridiculous yeah. disinformation story because, oh, they were trying to help. Like, this is a potentially an interdimensional craft or something coming from a different solar system. And, and the so radiator that, hose broke. Yeah, so somehow, needed, the, yeah. somehow the military knows how to... Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I see this. I, I, I know there's you. no propulsion system yeah. on here, yeah. but... Uh, You're thingamabob flux capacitors and fucking working yeah. right, so, you know, we'll, we'll yeah. swap that out. Jesus Christ, it amazes So me. that is the... That is kind of the story that was going around to everybody, mm. and there's a guy named Larry Warren and Gay, uh, Greg Batram, right? and they were both used as prime candidates to be used as a useful, unwitting misinformant for the agents of deception, according to Jim Penniston. Mm. Um, Jim Penniston calls Larry Warren a useful idiot, <laughs> and it's suspected that J.D. Ingalls told Penniston the story to see and gauge his reaction and report back to his handlers. And it was smart of Jim Penniston to just never say anything. Right, right. And when I first looked at clips and I was trying to start putting stuff together, I stumbled on the Larry thing. And I, I remember asking you, too. I was like, well, this one guy that got interviewed and he was on the site. And you're like, flat out, oh, he's a dipshit. He was even part of the – so the, I can see it's very easy to go down that other rabbit hole of what actually happened, who's saying what. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just a lot of stuff on, on the backside of that completely. So, yeah. Anyway. So now we get into everybody that's claiming that they were involved, claim getting into people that claim they were there and they have these fantastic stories. And one of these guys is Larry Warren. He's also known as Art Wallace. And he claims that he was personally involved in, the UFO events that took place off the base. Right. Um, his story made it into the tabloid news of the world almost exactly a year after the incident. Um, it was also featured in the book sky crash and he was in it under his pseudonym pseudonym art Wallace. And he also co-authored a book with uh, UFO researcher, Peter Robbins. I'm not sure if our listeners have heard of him, but um, he's a fairly well-known researcher and he's, I, I think he's a good guy too. Um, that book's called left at East gate and it was published in 1997, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that have came out with, uh, Larry, Larry Warren that were brought to Peter Robbins attention kind of afterward. And he, Peter Robbins has basically distanced himself from Larry <laughs> Warren. Um, they stopped printing the book left oh, wow. at East gate. So if anybody is out there trying to get a legitimate book on the Rendlesham incident, um, do not get left at Eastgate because it's he's full That's of shit. That's not, not, not going to be the right one to do. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. I guess this is a good time to – well, so he, Larry got involved with uh, – Betty Andreessen and his uh, and her husband Bob Luca and Betty Andreessen is a famous alien abductee, and they got him in touch. They got them in touch with Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood, and they're founding members of Cause Citizens Against UFO Secrecy. And Fawcett's the one that gave Warren the name Art Wallace, 
And it's pretty doubtful that Warren had ever been debriefed or interrogated during his brief time in the Air Force over these incidents or told to sign papers that restricted him from taking talking about the incident after he was discharged from the Air Force, as claimed. Um, and according to all the prime eyewitnesses, he was never involved. No one ever hmm. saw Larry Warren anywhere near any type of any type any, of anything. Uh, and you can report that yeah. he was actually part of any search party or what was going on. Yeah, no one can yeah. account for him. There is stories of Adrian Bastenza, the guy with the Lydols. He goes back and forth with his stories of, yeah, he was there. He wasn't there. So there's a lot of, if you ever read anything from Adrian Bastenza, take it as a grain of salt as well. Um, and Warren couldn't have been on duty, actually. He was still completing his six- to eight-week training because he just joined RAF Bentwaters on December 1st, 1980. And Warren actually produced Air Force documentation that showed he had completed his training and was assigned to official duties on December 11th, 1980. But evidence has come to light in January of 2017 that two of Warren's documents had been forged. And this was kind of a big deal. So I'm going to read this little, these, some, some of these notes. And it is, this is a statement from Peter Robbins. And um, in her book, you can't tell the people George Georgina Bruni writes that she had received a letter in 1999 by a friend partner of Larry Warren's who had pointed out that his medical records should be proof enough that he was involved in the Rendlesham incident adding that Warren had produced medical records for an eye problem, retina burn, that he had suffered while at Bent Waters, and as a result of the incident, i.e. the flash or shards of light he saw when the red ball of light exploded. However, in January 2017, Sasha Christie, in her article, Larry Warren Issues Statement about his documents, Colonel Charles Holt responds, Sunday, January 15, 2017, revealed that the medical paper that Warren has long claimed as proof of his eye problem while at RAF Bentwaters is a forgery. Also discovered to be a fake or forgery is Warren's in-process instruction sheet. And here's some relevant quotes. So Jimmy Church runs a radio show. Yeah, Everybody's heard yeah he's actually kind of cool. Yeah. So Jimmy Church. Okay, I'm going to ask you three questions back to back, and all I want is a yes or no answer. Okay. Okay, night 26. Did you see Lauren? The night of the 26th, did you see Larry Warren? John Burroughs, no. Jimmy Church, night two. This is written, sorry, weird. Night two, day two. On the base anywhere, did you see Larry Warren? No. Jimmy Church, day three. You're out there with Halt and Bastenza. Is there, is there two as well? Did you see Larry Warren? No. And that's John Burroughs being interviewed by Jimmy Church on Fade to Black. January 23rd, 2019. Hmm. So left Eastgate is a strange book. I can understand why people unfamiliar with the case will be awed by it because Warren and Robbins tell a fantastic tale. That is just what people want to hear. It is exactly what you would expect to be turned into a movie. And Jenny Randall's posted in August of 2009 and getting it right at Eastgate, Jenny Randall's words are quite prophetic because Larry Warren is the main focus of a movie now being made. Oh, Jenny Randall's is the one that said that, that Peter Robbins and them basically their story is so fantastic. It could be a movie. 
And Larry Warren is in the main focus of a movie now being made as this is being written about the Rendlesham incident titled Capel Green as produced by Gary Hesselstein. It's highly ironic that the non-witness who was never there has always been first at everything before the primary witnesses. From worldwide public exposure in 1984 to now being the star of a movie demonstrating the age-old adage that a lie will go once around the world before the truth gets its running shoes on. Yeah, I found that was very interesting because I, I stumbled across that too, that it seems like he is involved in all these things, but come to find out, most of his background is complete bullshit. But you yep. know, that goes for press and that just goes for media in general. And they're going to grab on anything that's sensationalist. And, mm-hmm. and it just what it is. You know, it's absolutely what it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just, and I've actually heard of Capel Green. I think that might have come out in January of 2020. Actually, I'm not sure. I think it was out or it will come out because I it was I missed track on that. Yeah, so um, I'm not even going to bother watching it if Larry Warren <laughs> has anything to do. Um, yeah. So just a little bit more. Uh, Warren also mixes up chronology and details of Bastenza's two trips with the Lydols. Not only that, his account is non not consistent. Not consistent, excuse me having stated that he was picked up in a Jeep and then by a pickup truck while also stating that another guy had taken his place at the post while on other occasions, he has said that the post was deactivated. Um, None of his state, none of his accounts have ever been consistent Mm -hmm. and it just points to him regurgitating people's stories that he's heard and been told. Yeah. So, and all these people that have interviewed him that have written books about this incident, have kind of got that feeling as well. And then there was like people have questioned him like, well, how many personnel were out there? Uh, there's a thing called, there's a story called the airman story. And it was published in the news of the world. And Warren as art Wallace is quoted by reporter, Bob Smith as having said, the clearing was full of RAF and USAF security people, about 200 of them. Later in a phone interview, he is taped saying, would have to say at least 100 people. I don't want to say two or 300. Yeah, there were quite a few. When Larry Fawcett interviewed Adrian Bastenza, Bastenza said at least 30 people. And finally, in his book, East at Left Gate, he decided to bring that number down to around 40 people. Of course. So Larry, Larry Warren's account of how many people were out there on the third night has been just wildly speculation. Yeah, wildly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's amazing, man. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's something to be said with that. Um, John, real quick, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and kind of wrap this uh, part up uh, with some other stuff. But very interesting in general, just everything laid out. But uh, stand by, guys. We're going to take a quick break. What up, far knockers? Aries, stop insulting people. These are potential listeners. Yeah, I'm so sure. Happy horror coffee break, old time horror radio show. We take the best and worst <laughs> creepy pasta stories online, and our finest of quality reenactors perform them for you in the style of old timey horror radio dramas. Everyone knows it's just you disguising your voice poorly. No, it's not. Besides, we have an abundance of great guests. There's music and t-shirts. And a bunch of dick and fart jokes. You're not wrong. <laughs> Catch us on all the major podcasts, thingamawarpers. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. 
Slapstick. Hard knockers. And the rest. Idiot. Tune in every other Friday. There's a new episode. Or just stick your head in an oven. Same difference. Aries. <laughs> we need to have a little chat. <laughs> Toodles! The fourth hand joins. All right, and we're back. Um, we're going to wrap up this episode a little bit on that. John, you had some other things on your side, some tidbits, and then uh, and then we can kind of tell you what our what our plans are for you know the remainder here. Be weary of who you're kind of reading. I think Jim Penniston is a very credible source. Uh, I think John Burroughs is credible. Colonel Hall is fairly credible, even though he might get some some things mixed up here and there. Um, I would be weary of anything. When you see anything with Larry Warren or art Wallace, I wouldn't listen to that one little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, So anytime you're reading anything about this, if you see the name Larry Warren or art Wallace um, immediately take it as (laughs) just whatever. I mean, if you want to read it, go for it, but just realize that it's not real. Um, Adrian Bastenza was out there, but he also, he's, uh, his accounts are just like way too off and way too wishy-washy and like, it's, it's just really strange. So anything kind of by that, I would definitely be, um, I would be kind of hesitant on taking their word for it, but the three main guys, Halt, Burroughs, Penniston, Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of where you want to go in this, in this realm. Agreed. Things. Agreed. I think that, and you know what? We always challenge the listeners to go ahead and listen to all sides. Cause you know, I mean, you can't, you can't really gather a hypothesis till you know both sides, but you know, we've done most of the homework for you where John has actually on this one. And, uh, and I think you're right on that. Like who's credible and who's not credible, but by all means, you know, the door is open. You guys can do whatever you want. There's other things involved in this. That's pretty much the bulk of what occurred. We covered the first night, which was major. We covered, you know, our eclipse recordings, who saw what, and some of the witness accounts and some of the after effect. Um, there is a little bit more that we're going to actually venture into Patreon with where we're going to cover uh, where they are now, what they're going through, some other plausible theories, uh, and then just some ins and outs of things that had happened. It's going to be a short little Patreon episode won't affect this. This is a story of Rendlesham in, in a in a big nutshell. And again, thank you, John, for doing the homework. But uh, if you do want to follow that on Patreon, by all means, you know, we'll have that along with other bonus episodes over there. Um, amazing. And I think my side, you know, if you look at it, like you said, who to listen to, who not to listen to, John, I think the same thing really goes for anything, any case. Take Roswell, for example, which really is, you know, this is, they say England's Roswell. The same fucking exact thing. There are certain characters that you need to pay attention to. There are certain characters that you really don't. And I think it's gotten so convoluted over the years. A lot of this shit's just muddied in the waters. And so, you know, that's the problem with a lot, especially if you're looking at a case that is over 30 years old and Christ Roswell's way older than that. So you can imagine everything that's lipped onto that too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think this is just a fascinating case. Um, even if Nick Redfern is real or his theory somehow is somehow he, he cracked the case. Right. That's crazy as well. We will get into that. Uh, I don't want to get too much into that, but we'll get into that on the Patreon episode. Yeah. So I've got that. Yeah. 
Sorry, let's just hint about nerve gas and could (laughs) it have been the lighthouse because of nerve gas or pranks from the SAS or whatever? So, I mean, you know, I've got that book and, you know, I'll read a little bit more into it. So by the time we line up the Patreon episode, you know, maybe I'll have some stuff on my side and then I'll throw it at you two for that. But um, anyway, hope everybody enjoyed that. It was interesting for me because I really have heard of it, but I never really dived into it. John, good luck finishing the book. You only got another 4,000 pages. And then I think you'll be done on that fucking thing. (laughs) Anyway, follow us, everybody. You can follow us on all social media platforms. Uh, You can write us if you have a story or you have a topic you want to suggest at strangejungles at gmail.com. You can call us on our hotline. And we do have a few calls that we've got saved. We're trying to kind of build them up a little bit so we can kind of do a special episode. But if you have a a story of a family or a friend or something you encountered um, that's just crazy, you know, by all means, you can dial in our hotline, 801-252-69- 45 and you let us know that way and then uh josh john where are we at with all the other social uh you can find us on twitter at strange uncles and you can find us on facebook and instagram at strange uncles podcast.com we're on the gmail if you want to email some stuff to shane that's pretty cool strange uncles at gmail.com and uh, we have a YouTube channel, so if you want to see our ugly faces, go there. And, and please rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It helps yep. with clarity and bumps us up. And, you know, we want to share this with as many people as we can. So, yep, please rate and review. Absolutely. Hopefully you take you guys out of the, you know, the bullshit that happens every day and you get to strap on your weird minds a little bit and enjoy us for at least an hour, hour and a half. And, you know, that's our goal. So hope you guys are liking that. Um, again, John, kudos. Thank you for taking the homework and the time because I know, you know, it's a project we each, all three of us kind of pitch hit a, a topic we want. And, and when we do it, we, we each take, we put a lot of time into it. So hopefully you guys kind of appreciate the, uh, you know, the transparency and the detail work on it, you know, so much appreciated. You guys got anything else? No, I think we should just, uh, close the gates. been listening to a fourth hand production